Welcome to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. We're excited to share this week's message with you. Our mission is to allow God to work in and through us, and we'd love to hear your story of how God has been working in or through you. Email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in and through you. We are in the second week of our year-end series, and we've I've just taken a bit of a, uh, uh, a pause from our study in the book of Ephesians. And every year, if you're new here, we take time to discern and ask God for a, a word for our church that would um, express where we are in the moment and where we believe God is calling us to go in the next year. And the word that God gave us this year was be strong. And... Um, that word, be strong, there's, there's so many Bible verses that, that um, implore us to be strong and talk about our need for strength. Ephesians 6, uh, verse 10 is one of those, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And when we say be strong, it's not stand up in all of your strength. It's not apply all of your wisdom and understanding. It's not uh, all of those things. We need to do those things. But I, I just believe that God is calling us to a new place of spiritual strength, a place of spiritual depth and strength that come out of a new level of intimacy with God. God is the most high. There's no one like him. He's omnipotent. He has all power and authority. And the closer we walk with him in intimacy, the greater strength he can impart to us in our life. He's calling you and I to be strong out of our relationship with God. He's calling us to be strong in how we obey the word of God over our life, how we follow what he says. He's not calling us to be strong in knowledge. Knowledge is good, but knowledge in and of itself will not produce strength in your life. It's only knowledge applied with obedience that will produce strength in your life. It is only knowledge applied with obedience that will give you the kind of spiritual strength you need to stand in the storm. That's the only thing that will give you the spiritual strength you need to go toe-to-toe with the enemy of God in your life and overcome and prevail. That's the thing you and I need in our life, to actually sit in that place of intercession and prayer and prevail over our families and our friends and for the things that we know God has promised us. It's applying the word of God to our life. It's not just knowing it. That's a Western, modern way of thinking. If you know the scripture and don't apply it, the Bible says you're like an infant spiritually. But if you apply and appropriate the word of God, if you obey what he's going to lead you into, he'll fill you with strength. God is calling us to be strong in that way. God is calling us to walk with spiritual authority, to not give back ground to the enemy to not get caught in these cycles that we find ourselves in of habitual and repetitive sin patterns, where 20 years later we're still dealing with the same hurt and dysfunction and sin in our life. God is calling us to a season and a year to be strong in our spiritual authority and break through those patterns, to, to actually move from strength to strength, from glory to glory. That's actually what God is calling us to. And last week we opened up this series with a look um, in the book of Joshua chapter 1. And we're going to continue in this story. But I, I just this week, I, we were at a conference this week and it was just incredible. One of the things that the speaker said uh, repeatedly that just so deeply impacted me and resonated with me. He said the, that the faith you need for the move of God you need in your life lies beyond your current comfort zone. You are never, and I am never going to experience 
the depths of what God wants to do in our life if we do not step beyond our current comfort zone, whatever that is, just fill the blanks in, fill the list in. If you and I are not willing to step outside of our comfort zone right now, we'll never be able to lay hold of the things that God wants us to possess and access. And Joshua chapter one, as God is saying to Joshua, be strong. Be strong and courageous. There's a promised land on the other side of the Jordan that I've given you as a possession. It's yours, but you've got to cross the Jordan. Your feet have to touch the ground on the other side. You've got to activate yourself in moving and trusting and believing that what I said about you is true, that my strength is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. That everything you need to accomplish the very next assignment that I have for you, you have today. The Bible says that you and I have today everything we need for life and godliness. There's no step of faith that God is calling you and I to today that he hasn't already supplied us with the necessary tools and means that we need to actually fulfill it. The question is, are you and I going to break through those comfort zone barriers? and move forward in a new depth of our spiritual life so that we can actually access the promises of God over us. God said to Joshua, I want you to succeed and prosper. And God's word over us is the same. He wants us to succeed and prosper. He wants us to actually lay hold of his promises and live in victory. He wants us to actually gather all of the things that he's set out before us. All of the things that he's called us to, the vision that he's given you for your life and my life. He wants us to walk successfully in that. Not to stumble in the dark and in blindness. And so what God is calling us to next, what he's calling you to next, lies beyond your current comfort zone. And for Joshua and the Israelites, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness because of the correction of God, because of unfaithfulness to God, a whole generation had to die away. But there was a a river called the Jordan River that stood between them and this land that God had promised them. He said, if you're gonna reach the land on the other side, you have to cross the river. And to cross the river, you've gotta put your feet in it. I believe that God is calling us into a season where we respond to his challenge and his call to put our feet in the river and to be willing to cross, knowing that what he's inviting us to, he's already provided for us four. Let's look at um, Joshua. We're going to move a little bit further on in the story. In the Old Testament, book of Joshua, chapter 6, we're going to move on to. I want to make this point as we start. That following the lead of God across the Jordan, following God into those areas of faith beyond our comfort zone doesn't require us to move faster, it requires us to move slower. That God isn't calling you to, in a frenzy, kind of gather everything and all all you can do and just start running aimlessly. What he's inviting you to do is slow down and get behind Jesus. What he's inviting you to is to slow down and listen for the voice of God to give you direction. Jesus is not nervous about today for you. He's not nervous about tomorrow for you. He's not nervous about your future. He's not nervous about your failure. He's not nervous about any part of your life. He's not nervous about the bigness of the things that he's calling you to, what he's inviting you to do is step behind him. Before Joshua and the Israelites crossed the Jordan, or sorry, just after they crossed the Jordan, they were on the plains of Jericho. 
And Jericho was a city, and Jericho was the first place beyond their comfort zone that God was going to ask them to lay hold of. But before they could meet and formulate a strategy for Jericho, Joshua had to first have a divine meeting with Jesus. As they're on the plains of Jericho, they've crossed the Jordan now, they're on the plains of Jericho, and they're, they're getting set to figure out, all right, what's next? Like, so we're here. Step one, we've, we've moved past our comfort zone, but then what do I do once I'm here? What you do and what I do is we wait. And we wait until Jesus actually gives us specific direction on what to do next. Do you see how that kind of life, that kind of life kills anxiety and it kills fear because I don't have to make it up. I don't have to figure it out. I don't have to muster all of my strength. What I need to do is just wait. And what some of you need to do is slow down and wait and listen and ask God, what do you want to do right now in this season of my life? Before they had the battle plan for Jericho, Joshua had to meet with Jesus. It says that the angel of the Lord came down. This is Jesus in the Old Testament in physical form comes down as an angel and he comes down as a warrior. And so he stands before Joshua and Joshua kind of looks at him and he says, whose team are you on? And he said, I'm on neither. I'm an angel. I'm the angel of the Lord, the captain of heaven's armies. And where you're standing is holy ground. And there's some things I need to communicate to you before you move forward. And some of you actually need to slow down, get behind Jesus, and wait for his leadership. When his leadership comes, peace comes. When his leadership comes, anxiety can't thrive in that. When his leadership comes, clarity comes, and direction and vision come. And so this angel of the Lord, Jesus, gives Joshua a battle plan. And Joshua and the Israelites begin to take that battle plan into action. Chapter 6, before we, I get too off track here. Chapter 6, I haven't followed my notes yet, so I'm going to try and get back on here. I've got a lot of them, so I'm going to try and stick to them so we can move through. Chapter 6, verse 15 to 19. So God has given Joshua and the Israelites this plan. If you are familiar with the Bible, you might know it. Um, They're to walk around the city uh, quiet without saying anything once a day for six days. Then on the seventh day, they're to walk around quiet six times. And then on the seventh time, make a lot of noise and all that stuff. Verse 15 says this. On the seventh day, the Israelites got up at dawn and marched around the town as they had done before. But this time they went around the town seven times. The seventh time around, as the priests sounded the long blast on their horns, Joshua commanded the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the town. Jericho and everything in it must be completely destroyed as an offering to the Lord. I want you to just, if you're an underliner or a circler, just kind of circle that verse because that's key to what we're about to talk about and it's key to the understanding of uh, what we need in order to be strong in the Lord. Jericho and everything in it must be completely destroyed as an offering to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and the others in her house will be spared, for she protected our spies. Do not take any of the things set apart for destruction, or you yourselves will be completely destroyed, and you will bring trouble on the camp of Israel. Everything made from silver, gold, bronze, or iron is sacred to the Lord and must be brought into his treasury. The first point I want to make for you as we talk about what it takes to be strong spiritually in our lives today, as it was in Joshua's time. The first point I want to make for you is God must be first. 
They have this battle plan from God. They have this supernatural and divine direction. And God tests them with this very first assignment. He says, you need to set apart all the silver, gold, all the spoils that you would normally take for yourself are mine. Everything you need. Now, you've got to understand, this is a nomadic people group that have been wandering around in the wilderness eating manna from heaven. They live in tents that are probably, you know, weathered and worn from 40 years in the wilderness. They have nothing. They don't have anything. And at the very first opportunity for them to actually gain a foot up on life and actually to provide themselves with some of the necessary resources they need for life, God says, no, that's mine. This first one is mine. You need to trust me. You need to trust in my provision in your life. If God is not first in our life, there's no strength. If we want to be strong, God must be first in our life. It's actually a principle related to part of his character. There's a theological term that's, that is uh, the word preeminent, that God is preeminent. He must be first. He must be before all things. And God is testing and challenging Israel with this principle. The most important strategy of the devil then is to battle for our heart and that place of firstness, if that's a word. I'm making it a word. So it's logical then that one of the first areas of conflict we're going to have in our life and all through our life is the battle for first and whether we have a heart that is wholly unified under the leadership of God in our life or we have a divided heart. The reason that this is so significant, so significant, it says in Matthew 12, 25, that a kingdom divided itself can't stand. The devil knows that if he can split your heart, if he can get you to kind of chase a little bit of God on this side, but trust a little bit in yourself on this side and get you to add a little bit of religion and Christianity on this side, but keep depending and controlling and influencing your own life on that side. He knows that you'll have no strength and you can't stand. He knows that you're weak and you're vulnerable. That's why this principle of the first is so important. The second reason it's so important is the first redeems the rest. What did Jesus say in Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God. Then all of this stuff will be added to you. Not go after all of this stuff and then thank God for it later and ask him to bless it. But seek first the kingdom of God and then watch what God does in your life. God must be first in our life. We're going to look at a little bit of that. The first way that God must be first is he says that all of the firstborn are his. I want you to turn with me to Exodus 13, 1 and 2. So this is the first kind of bit of teaching on firsts that we come up with in Scripture. Exodus 13, 1 and 2. It's actually not the first, but it's the one we're starting with. Um, this is God talking to Moses, okay? So this is before the events of Jericho. This is while they're in the wilderness. God said, dedicate to me every firstborn among the Israelites. The first offspring to be born of both humans and animals belongs to me. So again, God is laying a foundation for them. You're a nomadic tribe displaced from the nation of Egypt. You have nothing to your name and you're gonna to need to trust me. The first offspring of your lamb or your goat or your cattle either needs to be redeemed or sacrificed. Not after you've had nine, you go back and say it's a sad day for you, number one. That's not what God was saying. He was saying, you need to give me the first and trust me with the rest. We see this principle of first all through scripture. 
Exodus 13, 11 to 13, just further down in there. This is what you must do when the Lord fulfills this promise. He swore to you and your ancestors. He's prophetically speaking to the time that we're reading in in Joshua. When he gives you the land where the Canaanites now live, you must present all firstborn sons and firstborn male animals to the Lord, for they belong to him. A firstborn donkey may be bought back from the Lord by presenting a lamb or a young goat in its place. But if you do not buy it back, you must break its neck. However, you must buy back every firstborn son. It's a really disturbing verse there in some ways. And I really believe what God is saying there is if you're not going to give me the first, then it's going to be cursed anyway. So you might as well not even have it. If you're not willing to surrender to me the first things of your life, your time, your energy, your resources, your capacity, your strength, if you're not willing to surrender to me the firsts, then I'm not going to bless the rest. Firstborn needed to be sacrificed or redeemed. I want to just fast forward with you to the New Testament. When the When John the Baptist comes on the scene and he sees Jesus, what does he say of Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We read in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son. I want to just highlight something to you if you've not thought about this or considered it before. But Jesus was God's first Jesus was God's tithe. We're going to talk about tithing in a minute. But Jesus was God's first. God's first sacrificed for you and I on the cross. Before we ever believed, it says in Romans, before we ever believed, while we were still sinners, while we were still rejecting God, you might be here today and you're not even sure what you believe about God. You might be here today and you've actually been actively rejecting him in your life. You've been scoffing at God and rejecting the idea that God loves you and sent his son to die for you and save you. Maybe you're here and you're rejecting that. But God says, while you're still doing that, while you're still opposed to me, I still sent my son to die for you. I've made the first move. I've moved first to you. Romans 5, 8 and 9. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. It says in Philippians 2, verse 6, though he was God, this is Jesus, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being when he appeared in human form. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. I want to read to you a quote from uh, a theologian and a scholar named Nancy Piercy that talks about the reality of what Jesus gave up for you and me. When it's Paul says in Philippians that he humbled himself, it wasn't just a temporary, oh, I'm just going to take one for the team right now. But because of the physical resurrection of Jesus, Forever now in eternity, the divine has been joined with humanity. Jesus has eternally humbled himself. He eternally let go of that part of his divinity, as it says. He humbled himself and became less than he was to meet us at our point of greatest need. This is what Nancy Piercy says, not only did Jesus rise from the dead, but he also ascended into heaven. We often think of the ascension as a kind of add-on with no important theological meaning. What it means, however, is that Christ's taking on of human nature was not a temporary expedient to be left behind when he finished the work of salvation because he was taken bodily into heaven. 
His human nature is permanently connected to his divine nature. Do you get that? If you're not sure about what the Bible says about heaven, you can read a series or listen to a series we did back in June online. But the Bible says that one day Jesus will return in bodily form. That eternity for us is not as a ghost or a vapor in some unknown ethereal place. Eternity for us is on a physical earth with physical bodies, with the physically resurrected Lord Jesus Christ for eternity, living on this earth and actually walking out the kingdom of God in every way. Jesus humbled himself for you and I. He gave up parts of his deity in that way. He's fully God and fully man, and it's a mystery we don't quite understand. But he humbled himself, became like us to save us. God gave his first, and he's calling us to put him first. Another first that the Bible talks about are first fruits. Exodus 23 Verse 19, as you harvest your crops, bring the very best of the first harvest to the house of the Lord your God. You must not cook, oh, we're not going to read that. So, (laughs) obviously, um, maybe some of you are farmers here. I know some of you are. But this is not just for people in agriculture. God is saying that what he's asking from you is to bring the first of what you're blessed to make. What he's blessed you and provided you with, he's asking to bring the first. And so this was what God was testing Joshua and the Israelites with. You're in the promised land now. Great step of faith. You're trusting God for what comes next. But the first thing I want from you is Jericho, I don't want you to keep any of it for yourself because I want to teach you to trust me in everything. Proverbs 3, 9, and 10, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce, and he will fill your barns with grain and your vats will overflow with good wine. Malachi 3, 8 to 12 said this. This is a harsh, harsh critique Should people cheat God? Yet you've cheated me. But you ask, what do you mean? How did we ever cheat you? You've cheated me of the tithes and offerings due me. You are under a curse for your whole nation has been cheating me. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough for my temple. If you do, says the Lord, this is a conditional thing, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the window of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. This is the only thing that God invites us to test him in. Your crops will be abundant, for I will guard them from insects and diseases. Your grapes will not fall from the vine before they are ripe, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for your land will be such a delight, says the Lord. He says, try it. Test me. Test me in putting me first in your life, in trusting me first in your life. Test me in putting me first with your time, reorganizing your schedule to make God first in your day, reorganizing your life so that in all things he's first, that there's unity between your spirit, soul, and body, that God is first in all of them. So what is the tithe that we're talking about? Leviticus 27.30, one-tenth of all the produce on the land. Tithe literally means 10%. It's a tenth. The number 10 in the Bible is a number for testing, Tithing is the ultimate test of our heart. Remember, God is not interested in money. He doesn't need your money. This church doesn't need your money. We don't need it. I trust in God. I don't care if you give or don't give. I don't care. But this is an issue, a deep spiritual issue of your heart. That God is going after your heart, and he knows that your heart is connected to your wallet. It is for all of us. 
Your heart is connected to the stock markets that you watch daily to see how your investments are doing. How much time do you spend watching the markets and checking your bank account versus digging into the word of God? It's your heart that he's after. He doesn't need your resources. But we're going to see later that what he wants to do is allow you and I to partner with him to see the miraculous happen on the earth. When we bring our first to God, he takes that first and he blesses the 90% and he opens the storehouses of heaven and he enables us to do things that we would never be able to do if we held on to the first and he cursed the 90%. It's your heart that God is after. 10 is the number of testing, and on the screen there's a few ways, 10 plagues, 10 commandments, 10 tests for Israel in the wilderness, a whole bunch of stuff. It requires faith to give the first. That's why it's connected to our heart and why it's so important to God. Remember, this is the very first test of the Israelites as they conquered Jericho. Everything God said is mine. And we see that there was a certain man named Achan who defied that. And Achan's decision to keep the first for himself, he he kept gold and riches and things like that. He buried them in his tent, thinking nobody would know. I'm going to bury this secret so deep, not even God can see it. But guess what? God does. God knows what's in our heart, and he knows what's going on in our life. And this one man's sin cost a whole nation. Do you think that our heart is important to the Spirit of God? Yeah. We mentioned last week that if God doesn't win the heart first, then nothing else will be able to follow. But if God can win your heart... If God can win an undivided heart in your life and my life, we'll see the supernatural activity and hand of God on everything that we do. That is the heart of God for us, is that everything you touch, everything you put your hands to, everything you invest your time into, everything you invest your resources into, everything you pour into your family, that it would be blessed that you would succeed, that you would experience the goodness of God in your life. That's what comes from having a heart that's first after God. The tithe is a spiritual heart issue that has the power to bring you and I under unison and unity with God or move us out from unity with God. That's how important this is to God. The first portion is the power to redeem the rest. Romans eleven sixteen. Since Abraham and the other patriarchs were holy, their descendants were also holy, just as the entire batch of dough is holy, because the portion given as an offering is holy. For if the roots of the tree are holy, then the branches will be also. This is a quote from Pastor Robert Morris. says, there are so many blessings that go along with tithing. But it is the principle of putting God first and the principle of faith that initiate the blessing. They are the trigger. The first portion is the portion that redeems the rest. The first portion carries the blessing. I want you to hear me in this. The only people that I've ever encountered that push back and turn their nose up against tithing are the ones who are looking for a way out of it. I want to also point out to you, the principle of the tithe is not a law principle. The principle of the tithe starts in Genesis. Hundreds and hundreds of years before the law came to Moses, God's principle of the firsts came into being. Cain and Abel, what does it say? It says Abel brought his firstborn as a sacrifice to God. But of Cain, it says in the due course of time, when Cain felt like it, When Cain had already spent some of his crops on himself, when Cain had already filled his barns and decided that God could use a little bit of the leftovers, and God said, I'm not going to receive your offering and your sacrifice. Tithing is not an Old Testament law issue. 
And in fact, Jesus says in the New Testament, your righteousness has to be greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees. Jesus actually ups the ante in every area of our life. If you're thinking that grace excuses us to live in sin, to glorify ourselves and do whatever the heck we want, you have another thing coming. Jesus said adultery isn't just what you do with your body, it's actually even what you think in your mind. That even if you've looked at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her. He said, it's not just if you murder, but if you hate someone, you're guilty of murder. Jesus takes the bar and he shoots it up. Then he says, what I came to die for is greater than even just the 10% I'm asking you to give. It's greater than just the first little bit I'm asking you to give. So if Jesus gave his whole life and you're balking at giving the first 10% of your increase to God, think about it. Sure, we're not under the law anymore. We're under grace, which means we should be giving way more generously. We should, our hands should be open, saying, God, do whatever you want with my life. Move me wherever you want to move me. I'll work wherever you call me to go. I'll do whatever you call me to do with my family. I'll do anything you ask me to do. You gave your whole life for me, Jesus. So my whole life is yours. Not just the first little bit on my check and not just my prayer over my meals and my bedtime prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep, but my whole life, Jesus, is yours because you came and you gave your life first. The first is God's. Paul even went on to say in 1 Corinthians 16, now regarding your question about money being collected for God's people in Jerusalem, you should follow the same procedure I gave to the churches in Galatia on the first day of each week, you should put aside the portion of the money you have earned. Don't wait until I get there and try to collect it all at once. What's Paul saying? Look, this is not a print. You don't just do it when you feel like it. You don't just take a special offering once a year and go, oh, great, we did it. That you give as you receive from God as he entrusts you with more things that you freely release it back to him. As a church, we practice what we preach in this way. We give the first 15% of everything that comes in back to God. We're not asking you to do it and then neglecting to do it as a church and as a leadership. This is an extremely important principle to us. I want to show you a few of the ways that we do this. We give back to people in our church through gas cards and grocery cards, people that need help. This year, so far, we've given $13,000 of gas and grocery cards away to people who need help week by week and day by day. As the cards run out, we replace them and refill them because God has called us to give back First, we are invested in local outreach, Project Share, Happiness in Motel Ministry. We've invested almost $6,000 into that, not including, not even including the 20 plus thousand pounds of groceries we collected at Easter and the dozens of backpacks that we collected in September and the 30 plus families that we're going to feed and provide for at Christmas this year. We give back to God first. We invest in global mission in Malawi and we've sent teams to Mexico this year. So far, we're not even done the year, $55,000 worth of investment. We bought a, a van, not a band, we bought a van for pastors in Malawi. You know, they walk for days from these remote villages to connect together. It's like, not even that far, but the roads are so bad there. They walk for days. And one of the local leaders said, I just need a van so I can go and pick the pastors up and we can resource them and equip them. And we were able to help them with that because you have been giving. We're just about to send another $10,000. The rainy season has started in Malawi. 
And we're just sending another $10,000 in this week or next week, I don't know when it is, to help people put roofs on their house. And we have two teams from here going to Mexico in January to build homes for people. God has called us as a church, we're walking the talk. And this is a crucial principle for us as a church. I'm not asking you to do something with your life that our church is not doing already. And lastly, in December, we have two amazing Sundays that are coming up. We're inviting you to bring an offering beyond what you normally bring so that we can go beyond where we normally go for future growth and expansion. But the first 10% of that offering that comes in on December 8th is going out the door. It's not even really gonna reach our bank account, so to speak. In the last two years alone, that's been close to $50,000 from one-time offerings in December. God is calling us to put him first, and we do it. December 16th this year is our giveaway Sunday. If you haven't been here, it's probably the best Sunday of the year. God has called us to make that our first fruit Sunday. That's the first weekend after we give this offering back to God. And that offering, we give the whole thing away as a first fruit offering to God. We don't keep a dime of it. And this year, we are so excited. God has just miraculously, supernaturally brought uh, some ministry friends who work up north in the indigenous communities on the reserves. Just supernaturally, our paths have collided together. And we're giving that Sunday's whole offering to that ministry. There's two couples that lead that ministry that literally were living without plumbing and heat and running water for half of this year to lay their lives down for the kingdom's sake. And we have the privilege, we have the honor to, to actually release resources into their hands. As a church, this is what we're doing. Jesus sets a higher standard for us. Man, it's my heart. I wish we could give. I wish we could give millions of dollars away right now. We're being faithful with what we've been entrusted with, and God is helping us with that. Do you know we are able to give away now more than our whole budget was a few years ago? It's <laughs> a funny laugh. <laughs> <clears throat> It's just puberty. <laughs> Remember, my mom made me watch The Simpsons when we were kids. And uh, I'm just kidding. She, that was our thing, though. My mom and I watched it together. She's going beet red right now. But you know that there's that character that, like, for 15 years of the series, he was always going through puberty. Like, hey, Mr. Simpson, would you like fries with that burger? That's what I was just like there. All right. <laughs> Amazing. If you're here and you're under 30, you have no idea what I'm talking about, but that's okay. Google it. Um, so tithing is a test of our hearts that confronts something deeper than just money. And here's where I want to land the plane right now in the last 25 seconds that I have uh, to preach this morning. There's a countdown clock going on there. That this principle is deeper in God's kingdom than just uh, dollars and cents. It's a principle that confronts a demonic spirit called mammon. Jesus said, and we're just going to read it quickly, if you're faithful with little things, Luke 16, if you're faithful in little things, you'll be faithful in large ones. If you're dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. And if you're untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches in heaven? You know, as a church, we want to see the gospel kingdom of God be normalized in our church. There are three things that came with the kingdom of God in Jesus' ministry. Salvation, healing, and freedom from demonic oppression. We want to see those normalized. And we realize that if we want to be entrusted with that kind of stuff, we have to be faithful with the little things. The things that don't even matter to God, like our finances. 
If you're unfaithful with other people's things, why would you be trusted with things of your own? No one can serve two masters, for you will hate the one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. That word in the Greek for money is mammon. It's used twice. And that word, if Jesus was just simply talking about a $5 bill, he would have used a different Greek word. There's another Greek word that that is the word for money. But there's something Jesus is getting at here. Mammon means simply wealth or profit, but Christ sees it as an egocentric covetousness which claims man's heart and thereby estranges him from God. When a man owns anything, in reality, it owns him. Wow. If you think, and I think, what we have is our own, and that we can lay claim of ownership to it, we've already lost the battle. If you think that the money coming in and out of your checking account, that the family that you have, that the vehicle that you drive, the things you've been blessed with, if you think you own them, they already have possession of you and they own you. And that's what the Bible calls a spirit of mammon. It's from a Chaldee or a Syriac word meaning wealth or riches, but also by personification, the God of riches. Peter Wagner says this, yielding to mammon will quickly disqualify a person from playing a key role in being entrusted with wealth for the kingdom. Mammon uses four subordinate spirits in its attempt to enslave believers, the spirit of greed, covetousness, stinginess, and self-reliance. Every one of these needs to be on constant guard because of these things. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be given to you. This principle of tithing and firsts, it's not about God or for God. It's about us and for us. When we get the picture that God is to be first in our life, and we actually begin to make him first. God's heart is that we would be blessed, that we would succeed and prosper in everything we do, not just financially, but the things that you pour your life into as you make God first, his heart is to actually bless you. This is the principle of first that runs all through scripture. It's not for God. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need you and I. But it's his joy to see us when we make him first in our life, to see his supernatural hand at work in our lives. The question is, what is competing for our heart space today? Is your heart divided? Are there things that are clamoring for your attention, areas of trust that you just, you just can't release to God. Things that you're just not sure if you can fully trust him with. God is saying, test me with this stuff. Matthew 16, 19, don't store up treasures here on earth where moth and rust eat them and destroy. Where thieves break in and steal, store your treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy. So how does mammon, this spiritual being, if you've been here with us through our Ephesians series, we've been talking about the reality that the worldview of the Bible is that we live in an inherently spiritual universe and world. And this spiritual world has an effect on our physical material world. We can't separate the two. We can't separate the two. I want to leave you with five things that mammon influences in is greed, covetousness, parsimony, which is stinginess, independence. Like, I don't need God to do this. I'm gifted to make money. I don't need God to show me what to do next in my business. I don't need his leadership. I'm I'm wise. I'm strategic. I I got this cased. I got this figured out. And worry. Mammon uses worry to hold on to the first because we're not sure if God will actually come through. 
And God is saying, I want to challenge you to release this. I'm just going to invite Brandon to come up as we close. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, um, but about a month ago, I was away for a conference just in Waterloo, and I was in the hotel, and I was having my normal time with God in the morning. And in the morning, I just take time as part of what I do is um, just I, I work through the Lord's Prayer. If you're wondering what to pray or how to pray, just start there. It's actually not a junior prayer. It's incredibly deep and powerful. But I got to this part, give us this day our daily bread. And I said, Jesus, I believe that you're the bread of life. That's what the Bible says, that you're the bread that came down from heaven. That's what it says. Jesus, your word says you've given me everything I need today. I don't lack anything. And then I just felt just this nudge of the Holy Spirit. And I just felt like God speaking to me. It wasn't like James Earl Jones in my hotel room. It was just this inside voice. And I just felt like the Holy Spirit saying, yeah, Andrew. But you've been scoffing at my provision. You look at your life and you see everything you don't have and everything you'd like to have. You've taken what I've given you so many times and kicked it to the curb like it's trash, but it's my provision that comes from my heart. And you've said it's not good enough. You've said you want more. You've said when I get this much, then I'll give God. You said, I don't like that I don't live in the mountains, just being real. You said, I'm not happy with where I am in life right now. You've said you're disappointed in the things that I've blessed you with. But until you can actually be content, this is God speaking to me, Andrew, there's discontentment in your heart. There's covetousness in your heart. There's envy in your heart. There's vanity and greed in your heart. And until you bring those to the cross, until you allow me to crucify those, you're never going to be happy. You're never going to be satisfied with what I give. You're always going to be waiting for the next thing or the better thing. You're always going to be chasing something that's not me. You're always going to be putting me second, third, fourth, or fifth. But if you would deal with your heart, Andrew, if you would deal with your disappointment in where you are in different parts of your life, if you would deal with your disappointment with what you have sometimes, and you would see it as a blessing, and you would see it as a gift, your kids and your wife and your home and your car that hardly works half the time. If you would see that as a blessing from my hand, if you would be faithful in your heart to honor me as your first, then I can bless other parts of your life. And this principle, it's not about money. It's about your heart. The first 10% of your heart, with God blessing the rest, equals a supernatural life. It equals us stepping beyond the boundaries of our current comfort zone and saying, God, I don't know how you're going to come through, but I'm trusting you now, not later, now. What would happen? I want to challenge you with this. I was thinking about this. This is one of my closing challenges. I want to challenge you with this. What would happen if between just now and the end of the year, you gave the full first 10% of what you earned to God? What if you brought it to the storehouse? What would God do? What would God do with hundreds of thousands of dollars going out across the world? What would he do in our city and in our region? What would he do in our families and in our church? I don't need your money. 
God doesn't need your money, but he's inviting you to partner with him so that you have the joy, the absolute joy of watching him as his hand comes on your life, performing miracles that only he can do and inviting you to stand beside him as he provides for you and says, look, this is how much I love you. I gave my whole life for you. I want to show you things that will blow your mind, that will bring you greater joy and contentment and satisfaction than you've ever experienced. I was driving home from work the other day this week. I was just praying through this stuff and just processing it in my own life. And I just felt like God said, Andrew, what if that stuff that you really kind of desire now, what if the joy of heaven, which I believe this statement that is going to follow is true, what if it's my joy to bless you with that in heaven? What if you would have a whole eternity, a whole eternity with God doing the things that you love, that he's created you to do and designed you to do? I love Porsche. I will never probably buy a Porsche this side of heaven. But I love, since I was a kid, the 9-11. And I just, it, it seems so trivial, but it was so impacting to me at the time. I just felt like God said, what if in heaven, I let you have one of those? Would you give up your pursuit of that thing now and invest into my kingdom and trust me that for an eternity, I want to bless you? Would you do it? Would you make the trade? Would you stop chasing the stuff you're chasing? It's not that God doesn't want us to have anything. God wants to bless some people with great wealth. Wealth is not evil, but it's when it takes first place in your life that it becomes evil. God has blessed many people in the kingdom to be millionaires and billionaires who have a heart alignment with God that allows them to sow into the kingdom in exponentially huge ways. But his heart for you and I is, look, don't you believe that what I'm going to do with you in eternity is so much greater than you could ever know that for now you'd be willing to sow into what I want to do on the earth and be okay to wait for a little while for that house or that car or that boat. Maybe God will bless you with it in this life. If he does, I want to ride on it. And if it's a Porsche, I want to drive it, Ron. But what if you trusted God first and allowed him to work out the details of that? What would happen? First thing that God is asking you and I for today is our life. If you're here and you actually have not given your life to Jesus, he gave his whole life for you. And what he's asking you for is nothing less than for you to surrender your life to him. Admit you don't know what you need to do how to fix your life on your own. Admit that you can't solve your problems and that eternity is not something that you can figure out on your own. The first that Jesus wants from us is our life. The second thing he's asking for us is an undivided heart. And the beginning of that testing is in our resources and our finances, just like it was for Israel. So I want to challenge you. I'm dead serious about this. Put God to the test. Between now and the end of the year, give the full tithe to God. Bring it to God and see where he leads you. If you're really skeptical, we actually have a 90-day challenge where we'll give you your money back, seriously. You got to fill the form out and do things the right way, but 
Psalm 86. For you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. The principles of God's first are not just to increase our generosity. They're spiritual principles that are the foundation of our ability to be strong in the Lord. We hope that you are challenged and inspired by what you heard today and that you're willing to allow God to work in and through your life in bigger ways this week. We'd love to stay connected with you on social media, facebook.com slash mountainparkchurch and instagram.com slash mountainparkchurch. Finally, if you have a story of how God has been working in and through you, we'd love to hear it. Just email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in your life lately. 